Hi, thanks for listening. This is the It's So Widgets Flutter podcast. We're great lucky to have the key players on the Flutter team. Maybe you guys want to introduce yourselves? Chris, how about you go first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the newest. Uh, I just joined the Flutter team in December of uh, 2018, and I am the product manager responsible for the developer experience for Flutter, which, since uh, Flutter's a, a developer experience product, is pretty much everything. And I'm uh, Ian Hickson. I go by Hixie on GitHub. I'm the, the tech lead. I was one of the co-founders of the project several years ago. Thank you both for being on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I would say if you want to learn more about Chris's background, we have a whole separate episode just on Chris. And I highly recommend listening to it. It's excellent. Uh, and then just before we start, I have this amazing opportunity speaking to two people incredibly important in the Flutter community. Just want to express my thanks as a developer and this one key quick idea in that I think you guys sometimes think about, you know, building this framework that makes developers' lives better. But I think more than that, it makes everyone around these developers' lives better. I know I've spent hours and hours stuck and using old platforms on these kind of dead-end bugs. And you just become a, a worse a person, right? A worse husband, a worse father. And then when you spend a few hours with Flutter and you have this incredible level of productivity, it's beyond making you a better programmer. I believe it makes you a better person. And so the efforts you guys do are incredibly appreciated by the entire community. And yeah, we'd love to see where it's going to grow from here. So to get into the discussion, Ian, it would be great if you could share some of your background. Uh, I know you were involved with HTML and CSS spec. It'd be great if you could talk about it a bit. Yeah. So for I started back when I was in high school, actually. I started contributing to the, the WCC uh, mailing lists about uh, CSS and HTML back in the late 90s. And then uh, I was an intern at Netscape for a year in about 2000. Um, then I uh, worked for Opera, the software company that made uh, the web browser back in early 2000s. And from there, I went to Google to continue the work I was doing at Opera, actually the exact same work, uh, working on the HTML standard. And I did that for about 10 years. And then uh, Adam Barth, who uh, was one of the other co-founders for Flutter, um, kind of showed me what he was working on. And I was like, oh. This is, this is fascinating. I need to work on that. And so I jumped, jumped ship, as it were, and uh, have been here since. And so which department were you moving from? Were you working under the web and then moved to mobile, or was it more complex than that? My role at Google has always been kind of weird because as a standards person working on a, a browser technology but wanting to be kind of independent of Chrome and the, the, the team that was working on Firefox before that when I joined, uh, I was actually working for the open source team um, which was part of the research org for a while. And so my, my, my position in the company has always been kind of this miscellaneous bucket. Um, and then uh, when I started working on uh, Flutter, uh, once it became clear that that was, you know, becoming my new full-time job, uh, I switched to specifically to the Flutter team. And can you describe a bit about your role on the team? I'm sure it's changed over the years. Yeah, so my role now is basically is what they call tech lead. Uh, and what I think that really means is that everything is my fault. Uh, and it's my job to make sure that uh, people around me have the opportunity to put their best ideas uh, into the product. Um, so I, I do a lot of code review or, or actually more nowadays design review, API design review. Uh, I, I try and interact our team with other teams to make sure that what we're doing is, is consistent with what they're doing. Um, or at least make sure that our products solve you know, the problems that they have, uh, whether it's at Google or, or outside Google. You know, we, we speak to um, lots of other companies using Google. They're using Flutter now. Nice. And I'm sure your past experiences have really impacted how, how you've designed Flutter. Yeah, Flutter is actually is really different from the web in, in one core way that uh, was very freeing. So the, the web has this, uh, this amazing thing where it, from 1991 to now, Every web page that's ever, ever been written still works, which is kind of incredible if you think about it. Very few platforms have done that. Windows has done that. Uh, the web has done that, and really not many other platforms. And the, the way that you do that is you never break backwards compatibility. So once, in, in the case of the web, that means that you, once you have an API that is widely implemented, you simply can't remove it. You can't change it. Everything you do has to just take that as a given. And that means that you end up designing these kind of convoluted APIs, not because you're trying to, you know, not because you just suck at API design necessarily, uh, but because you, you're constrained in these really weird ways. Like I remember trying to design the drag and drop API in HTML. And to do that, I had to be compatible with what 
Internet Explorer at the time had implemented, which itself was this weird version of what Windows OLE had implemented. And it was it was some strange API. And so I was trying to come up with a rational API that was still backwards compatible, which is this really strange experience. And with Flutter, because it was a new project and we had no customers, uh, I just didn't have that constraint. So, uh, you know, I was able to work with my colleagues uh, to just create the API that we really thought was the best API. We were able to to rethink some core assumptions uh, that we had made before and just be like, oh, actually, we don't need that. You know, that's that's not important. Um, and so it was a very free experience. And now when we, we do have customers now, and so now we're in this new situation of when we want to make a change, do we break backwards compatibility? Do we maintain backwards compatibility? We had a big survey um, the last quarter, Q1 of 2019, where we asked uh, anyone who was you know, willing to answer this survey whether they thought we should maintain backwards compatibility at all costs or whether we should you know, break APIs if necessary to make them better. And I, I was very uh, surprised, actually, to see that a, a large, like a majority of, our, of the respondents said, yeah, break us, make the API better which is something that I was never able to do on the web. So it, it's a very different experience for me. Well, and then one of the interesting things about that is if you enable um, the team to, you know, carefully, thoughtfully make breaking changes in a way that really improves an API over time and overall makes developers' lives better. And apparently Hillel um, uh, helps bring about world peace, which, you know, I really love that idea. Um, <laughs> One of the other the other benefits you get there is um, increasing uh, developer velocity as well uh, for the contributors of Flutter. If they have the freedom again to thoughtfully break things, if they you know feel it really improves things overall, then they get to go faster, right? As opposed to you know the the story Ian was saying about you know the convoluted drag and drop API that he had to try to figure out how to make it work and still do the other stuff he needed and, you know, maintain backwards compatibility, that, that all takes time. And that's really hard to do. But if you can break and move forward and help people migrate their code, then you actually increase uh, developer velocity of, of new things coming into a framework. And if you look at, you know, languages like Go, they've done a really good job there where they actually have a, a command line option called Fix where it can dig through your code and say, oh, no, we, we're not doing it that way anymore. We do it this way instead, and let me fix your code for you. And then we move everyone forward at the, at the speed of the language changes. And we're thinking um, about what, whether we can do that uh, in Dart and Flutter as well to, to maintain developer velocity and make APIs better over time and still take the sting out of breaking changes uh, uh, away from our developers, which is kind of a, a win-win-win all the way around. You know, what's really funny, Chris, is uh, at one point there you were saying how uh, being able to make breaking changes can make us faster, but there's definitely been cases where I look at the web and I'm like, oh, on the web this was easy because I knew I couldn't change anything, so I had to implement it this particular way. And then I look at Flutter and I'm like, oh, well, Flutter's a blank canvas. I can do whatever I want. And I get like analysis paralysis where I'm spending like weeks being like, well, what could I do that's like the really... API. No, you're, you're totally right. Uh, um, sometimes, uh, you know, engineering needs constraints. So you can say, okay, within this box, you know, make exactly. this work. And you're like, oh, okay, then I only have one option. I'll just do it that way. As opposed to, as you say, a continuous br blank canvas. And so, you know, the, the balance is somewhere in the middle. And that's why I talk about thoughtful breaking changes, right? So our constraints are, of course, at this point, you know, you, uh, Ian, you no longer have the, uh, uh, the blank canvas that you once had. We've, we've got tons and a growing number of Flutter developers. And, and while we can make thoughtful breaking changes, we no longer get to just like, ah, let's, I don't like that at all. Let's just take that out and start over. And we don't have that freedom anymore. Yeah, one of the, the changes that I really wish I could make is, so it turns out that uh, Adam Barth, who is one of the co-founders I mentioned earlier, and myself, uh, disagree on how you spell the word adapter. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't remember which one of us thinks there's an O in the end and which one of us thinks there's an E at the end. But it turns out the half of the classes we have that use the word adapter have an O and the other half have an E, and it's purely based on which one of us introduced the class. <laughs> 
And I really wish I could rename the ones that, you know, that I that I don't have the letter I want and have the, the other one. But it, it's hard to justify that kind of change because uh, you'll break a whole bunch of people using those classes for really very little, you know, concrete gains, a slight improvement to the API name. Well, and then that's, again, another case where, you know, obviously over time we, we want to make that change. We have to pick the right time to do it. But that's another case where, you know, a good set of tools you could you could easily teach oh you know all the all the ERs really need to be ORs or whatever whatever we decide right yeah we should definitely look into into doing that in more detail yeah totally amazing those are excellent points I mean it comes down to not if it breaks but how it breaks and I come back to developer experience and just having an easy way to migrate forward I mean I, Ian I filled out that survey not long ago I remember my answers and the one thing that struck me is how I contradicted myself. I found in some parts I would answer one way, some parts the other, and I think it's just the you know the mindset of a of a developer who has deadlines. Where I want <laughs> yeah. both, right? And, and ultimately, right? I, I mean, I, I want a perfect API that everything's spelled perfectly. I imagine that really irks you. That things like that really bother me in my code. Uh, but I also I'm also I'm, I have deadlines, right? So I have a certain amount of, of stuff I have to get done each day. And I think and I think many of us developers have been burned from other platforms where yeah. it's the update itself that is the kind of the, the pain point. Totally. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that we're lucky with with Flutter is because you get to decide when you upgrade your SDK. I mean, this is this is true of most SDKs, but it, it's different from the web, which is where I where I grew up, so to speak. Um, because you get to pick when you update your SDK, you don't you don't get forced into these breaking changes. You you choose when to make the breaking changes to your own code, when when to migrate. Whereas on the web, one of the reasons we couldn't make any breaking changes is there was no way to stop those changes from being deployed. You know, as soon as a browser ships, boom, every web page now is exposed to this new way of doing things. That's a good point. It's worth adding. I didn't realize early on you could just do a Git checkout of the of the branch version you want and change versions easily backwards and forwards. Yeah, we, we made that even easier recently with a there's a Flutter version command. You can just say Flutter version v one dot four dot three or whatever, and it'll just jump to the version you want. Cool. That's awesome. Nice. And I will add to that, that Flutter, and I'm complaining about updates. Flutter is one of the best platforms I've used personally for updates, that there have been problems, especially earlier on, but it just keeps getting better and better with each release. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about just Flutter kind of nuts and bolts. It would be really helpful. I know you don't have any diagrams, it makes it a bit harder, but I'd love to hear your explanation of kind of the, the mental model of Flutter and how widgets, elements, and render objects kind of all interrelate. Yeah, that's hard to do without a diagram. Basically, what we're experts at in the Flutter team is building trees. Um, this has become our core competency. And so everything in Flutter is a tree. We have widget trees. We have element trees. We have render object trees. We have layer trees. We have display list trees. We have, you name it, everything's a tree, accessibility trees. Um, and so it, it, the whole of Flutter is basically this elaborate mechanism for moving data from one tree to another tree. Uh, initially, you specify things using these immutable widget trees, just, you know, here is the state of my application. And then the, the widget framework will take that and turn it into a more long-lived persistent element tree where the elements are uh, kind of general nodes. A widget can have its own element, but mostly like every stateless widget will use a stateless element. and Every stateful widget will use a stateful element. So there's lots of different stateful widgets, but they all generally share the same kind of element. And then those elements are considered to be configured by the widget that, that spawned them, essentially. And then some of those widgets uh, corresponds to actual concrete layout concepts like row and, and, and center and so forth. And those then uh, map to what we call render objects, which form another tree, the render tree. And so a subset of the element tree gets turned to this render tree, which we then use for computing layouts, constraints, computing layout itself, uh, figuring out how we're going to composite the scene, uh, actually painting the scene, and so forth. And the, the painting operation specifically is taking the render tree and turning it into a layer tree, which is a very sparse tree. It is not isomorphic with the render tree, but some render objects can have multiple layers. Multiple render objects can all end up on one layer. Um, and then uh, the layer tree we send down to uh, the C++ side, basically the, the Skia uh, the graphics engine, and that gets processed and sent down to the GPU. 
the the interesting thing in that design is that because all of this is just well, everything up to the the last part where we send it down to C plus plus, all of that is Dart code, and so none of it is really like magical. None of it is core to what Flutter actually is, if you think about it. Uh, you can go in and replace the widget hierarchy with whatever you want. You can remove it entirely and just use render objects. You can remove render objects and just use layers. You can remove those and just use the the low-level uh, scene-building API that we use to transmit the, the data to C++. To C++. And so it, it's just this big... Um, uh, the, the whole framework is basically just built on top of this low-level canvas API. And so essentially every pixel you see on the screen is being painted by uh, Dart code that has just low-level canvas scores, like, you know, draw a line here, draw another line here, fill this with this particular shape. I can go into more detail about any part of that if you wish, but again, it's hard to do without <laughs> without diagram. I definitely appreciate it. I would recommend anyone listening, if they haven't watched it already, is a YouTube video called Mahogany Staircase, yeah. which I highly recommend, which has the diagram. One aspect that I think would be interesting about a bit further detail is how the context uh, relates to it. Yeah, so if you if you use Flutter for more than like five seconds, you'll run across this uh, this type that we pass everywhere uh, called build context. You'll see it on build methods. You'll see it uh, on the state of state objects have have a context property. Um, and the way that you're supposed to think about it is when you're in a widget, you need to know like where you are. You need like a handle to the to the rest of the world uh, so that you can. Uh, find out, for example, what the the current text direction is. You can find out what the current default font style is, and so on. And the and also it's used for things like oh, you know, let me figure out what my geometry is. Let me figure out you know where I am in the tree, basically. And so we pass this build context around anytime you might need that information. Um, and the the API on build context is relatively sane, like it's it's relatively small. And it's hard to really do anything too uh, damaging to yourself if you use anything on that API. Uh, but the the reality is actually the build context is literally just the element that the widget is assigned to. We literally just have the element class implement the build context interface. And then when we pass the elements around, instead of passing around the element as if as typed as element, we pass it typed as build context so that the rest of the API on element, which you can do a lot of damage with, um, is is not easily accessible. I mean, you, you just cast two elements and, and, and do it that way, but it's not. It won't pop up in your autocomplete and so on. Um, and that allows us to do things like the, the, the element uh, class itself has all kinds of, of weird uh, APIs that let you manipulate the tree and so on, which is intended to be used by the framework itself when it's building the tree. Because again, it's it's all dark code. There's nothing hidden or magical here. Um, but if, if you start doing it from a widget, you're going to cause the framework to enter a very odd, inconsistent state and things will start crashing. And so, uh, we just hide it all by pretending that these build contexts are, are special objects that we pass around, but really it's just the element. Cool. That's really helpful. Um, so related to, to state in, in Flutter, I mean, I'm sure you've seen, there are many kind of state packages or approaches that have come around. Do you try it yourself and build apps with different state choices? Do you have your own opinions on which to consider using? Uh, yeah, well, a lot of us do, actually. Um, it The state problem is one that keeps... Uh, historically, when we, start, when we started working on Flutter, we thought we were building a UI framework. And uh, when we started talking to our first customers... Uh, they didn't think we were writing a UI framework. They thought we were writing an app, uh, an application SDK. It turns out an application SDK is a whole different thing than a UI framework. Uh, you have many more things you need to do in an SDK than you do in a UI framework. A UI framework is just a part of an SDK. So, for example, one of the things that an, a UI framework doesn't care about is how does the application manage its state? Because that's not part of your UI. That's just, you know, as I like to say, that's just engineering. Um, and when you're writing an application SDK, when you're using an application SDK, you you do care about that because you're writing an application, not just a UI. And so then you start having questions about, well, well, you know, what is the best practice for holding state and so on? And so we actually were kind of caught off guard by this question that we got very early on about where do I put my state? And our first response was, we don't care, put it wherever you like, you're writing an application. 
Uh, and now we've we've evolved a lot in our thinking on this. Uh, we've we've um, discovered that it really depends on what kind of application you're writing. So if you're writing a very elaborate application that's going to want to do things like undo and maintain a, a, an elaborate undo stack and, and, and so forth, you may want uh, something like uh, Redux or, or something like the block pattern, which you can read about if you Google around. Um, if you're writing you know, a very, very simple app, then you might actually not need anything really beyond maybe some global variables uh, or even just holding data in, in a state object. Uh, and there's a whole spectrum of choices in between there. Uh, there's a package on pub called uh, Provider, I believe, uh, that's pretty good. There's, um, we used to recommend using a scoped model, I think it's called. Yeah, that works. Good model. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it really depends on exactly what you're doing. I, I've, I ran into this myself. I, I've, I write some apps uh, using Flutter just in my spare time. And... It's been interesting to see how different, depending on what your app state is, you end up with very different requirements. So, for example, the, the app I was most, recent, most recently writing was very network driven, and the way that uh, it worked is it would it, I had a, a, a data model essentially, uh, and the data model represented whatever was currently last received from the network, and probing it would cause network requests. Uh, to update the data, and I use this this uh, interface we have called value listenable a lot. So all around my app, I would pass around these value listenables, essentially a tree of value listenable, because every value listenable would itself have a child that you know, or many children that were themselves value listenables, and so on. So you could listen to any individual part of the the data model you needed, and just keep going down and up th this tree. Um, and I discovered that actually what I really want isn't that. What I really want is to separate out the network requests from the data model so that the data model is really, the data is really stored in a database and it's all you know locally on the device. And the, the data model reports when that changes. And then I do the network traffic entirely separately from that. And so as I'm trying to, to move my app from this first model to the second model, I'm discovering that, oh, you know, I have to change how state is being managed in this app. Uh, I no longer care about displaying what the network progress is, so I don't need to have my special, you know, progress indicator state, uh, which was a big part of my original design. And so what I'm really saying is that uh, we have some recommendations for, you know, how to do state. And I think if you look at our website, you'll see some of those. But really it, it's very specific to how the app works and, and where um, where you're going with, with your app design. Just to jump in um, with a little bit more about our recommendations, um, uh, Hillel, I, I know we're recording this podcast before I.O. and then it will be published after I.O. And so for listeners, um, uh, Flutter DevRel, Matt and uh, Philip have done a fantastic uh, talk Um uh, about uh, called pragmatic state management, which is all about these kinds of issues and how to think about them. And uh, they dig uh, pretty deeply into the motivation for, you know, what what the naive state management would look like and, you know, what, what problems that could cause you if you're not careful. And then, you know, into a better way of doing things. And they show some live coding with, with the provider package, which is really what we we recommend at this point for, for people getting started. Of course, Ian's right. Uh, you know, as you, as you dig more deeply and you have more complicated requirements, if you have more complicated requirements, then, then, you know, you have complete flexibility to keep that state and manage it however you want to. It's just that we think that provider is going to cover a large number of cases and it's a great place to, to get started with state management in Flutter. Yeah, provider is actually a really good way to, to get data from a data model that you store kind of outside of the, the Flutter API surface, so to speak, and then how to get that data from there into your widgets, uh, which is a, a problem that a lot of people struggle with because you need to you know, rebuild parts of your tree when, uh, when the state changes, but also you don't want to rebuild all of your tree when the state changes. You just want to rebuild the part that matter. And so it's a really good way of getting the individual parts that matter 
into the parts of your tree that care about it. Excellent. Uh, I was going to say, it's really nice that Google getting behind this package provider, which was developed by Remy Rousselet, hope I'm pronouncing your name right, uh, from the community. And it's just really cool to see Google, the entity, taking on the community work and appreciating. It's a brilliant design. It's really well implemented. Yeah, I, I, I really feel like um, I, I, I want to make sure that, that when uh, we get people contributing code, they actually feel like part of the team. Like I, I tell our, our, our team at Google here that we are merely contributors as everyone else is. We're not you know, a special part of the community. We're just, you know, we happen to be the, the most prolific part of the community because we're paid to work on it. Um, but Flutter is an open source project and we very much look at it as an open source project. Uh, there's very little that is special to Google. I think the only real thing that's special to Google right now is when we do the, the releases, we do our releases by testing Flutter against uh, Google Flutter applications. Uh, like AdWords, like we run all the AdWords tests essentially um, to see if we broke anything. Uh, but there's no, beyond that, there's no real special thing about being a Googler. Um, and to the point where when I contribute to Flutter, I often do it from home. And at home, I don't have a Google Corp workstation. I literally just work as a uh, any contributor would. Amazing. I mean, there's a very special relationship, I think, between the community and the developers of Flutter. I think you guys make yourself incredibly accessible. Uh, both Ian and Chris, you both, uh, I, see, I read many of your posts on Reddit. And it, it just, yeah, it changes, I think, the, the relationship the developer has with the framework, uh, knowing that the, the people actually building it are listening and are, are conscious of, of what's going on. Yeah, that, that actually is uh, an incredibly important uh, part of making sure that developers get what they need. Um, the uh, uh, I've been doing framework work of one kind or another, uh, largely in the Windows community before I came to Google. And it turns out that to be successful, uh, to really build a thing that developers not just use or even feel like they have to use, but that they really enjoy, right? Again, getting back to the flutter as a way to to m- make people happier in general. Um, to do that, you you have to have that connection, right? It has to be, um, you know, a network of, of, of community uh, contributors and uh, communication. And you, you, it really has to be all of us working together as opposed to, you know, one side producing things and throwing them over the wall and, and, and then, you know, turning around and, and keeping up with their work. That's, it's just not an effective way to, to build something that people are really going to love. And that, that is a key goal of Flutter is, is building, building something that's not just good, but fun as well. I, I would go further than that. I would, I would actually say, like, I, I don't know how to build software any other way. <laughs> I mean, when, when I worked on, on the web, uh, I, the only way I could find out what people wanted was to go to the web developers and ask them. I, you know, I, I would try to troll through web developer forums and figure out what people were complaining about. And that would, that would be a huge part of the input I had into what uh, needed to change. You know, we had this, we had a mailing list where a lot of people who were really engaged contributed to, uh, and that's where the work happens while I was active. Now I think it mostly happens on GitHub, but same idea, you know, people contribute to to issues there. Um, But I don't know how you do it in the absence of that. And so for me, it's very much, the only way I know how to develop uh, a UI framework at SDK is to talk to the people using it and see what they're doing and, and, and listen to their feedback. Nice. And so related to transparency, uh, there was an issue recently we discussed kind of your vision for Code Push, which I know is kind of a heavily requested feature. Yeah. But you guys were very clear about your current plans. So I thought it might be helpful if you can go into some, some details, explain the thought process. Do you want to take that, Chris? <laughs> Yeah. So essentially, what you're asking is, hey, we've um, we've stepped back from um, you know push, uh, pushing on code push, so to speak, um, this idea of dynamic updates, um, and uh, you, we've uh, de-emphasized that in our 2019 roadmap uh, in favor of other higher priority things, and we did that for for a number of reasons. Um, one is that, uh, you know, for most of the apps, in fact, the vast majority of Flutter apps uh, today go through uh, either the Apple Store or Google Play Store. And these um, th- these 
policies are specifically saying things like, hey, it's okay um, for you to push, you know, interpreted code to your apps and update them, um, you know, so long as they run in some kind of, you know, protected sandbox. And, and what they're really talking about is, you know, these, these cross-platform uh, frameworks or these web-based frameworks for building mobile apps that you kind of then bundle uh, into, you know, a wrapper and, and can push it onto the store uh, where, you know, it's based around web technologies and, you know, it's running in a, in a sandbox that has been evolving uh, to be more and more hardened along with the mobile platforms on which they run, right? The, you know, the web, the web controls or the, you know, the, the web sandbox. And that's not the, the case with Dart. Dart doesn't run in a sandbox. Dart uh, is compiled to native code, and that's why you get uh, the performance you get. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, we, we would have to build a hardened sandbox, which we can do, and we may end up doing in the future, but we, have to, we would have to do that before we would feel safe about, you know, p- pushing any kind of code updates uh, around the stores. Um, directly into the apps, uh, so that's that's the that's the core reason. Um, it's not that we'll never do it. It's just that you know we we realize we need some more infrastructure before we feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, the thing that really convinced me is I, I was looking at what it would need, what we would need to do to to do this, and essentially what we'd have to do is build up an app store infrastructure again, because you need a way to distribute the patches. The thing we were primarily looking at that we decided to cancel for now is being able to patch your app. So there's other things you can do with dynamic code loading, but the, the one we were looking at at the time was, was patching your app. So you, 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 know, you submit version 1.2 to your store, and then you find a typo in your app, and instead of submitting 1.2.1 to the store and waiting for that to, to be transmitted to the devices, you just submit a patch to your server, and your app downloads the patch and, and applies it, and then you have, you, you've kind of sidestepped the stores. But the difficulty there, aside from all the, you know, whether the stores would be happy with that or not, is it's a real security nightmare to be distributing code in this way. Uh, so we'd have to build the infrastructure to securely store these patches. We'd have to have some sort of signing infrastructure to make sure that, you know, only the signature, only patches signed by the people who created the app in the first place could be deployed and so forth. And there's a lot of work to be done there that is really not the core competency of the Flutter team. Uh, it's something that we're eventually going to probably need to provide, particularly as we go into desktop, you know, where there's a question of how do you update desktop software? You could use the app stores there, but a lot of people don't seem to want to distribute desktop software via the app stores. So it's possible we're going to end up in a situation where we really have to support this anyway for desktop, at which point, you know, it starts becoming a lot easier to extend this to, to mobile as well. Uh, but we, we don't yet have that infrastructure. Um, and it's a significant effort to build it. So, you know, part of my uh, role as tech lead is to figure out where can our current people working on the team, our current engineers, where can they best uh, spend their time? And I could take five people and say, okay, we're building an app store equivalent. Um, or I can have them, you know, working on, on iOS and material widgets. Um, and when we look at what people are really looking for right now, it, they're more concerned about, you know, making sure that we fix bugs, making sure that we are, have a better story on iOS, making and so on, than, than they are about, oh, you know, I need a way to securely deliver patches. Particularly when you then look at, as well into the context of, oh, well, you know, maybe the app stores wouldn't even want this anyway. And even if they did, maybe we'd have to, you know, implement it using interpreted bytecode so it might not be fast and so forth. Thanks. That's a great explanation. I would say I think developers more so needing the features need a roadmap of features. We need to kind of be able to plan for what's coming now, what's coming in the future. And simply by saying that these are priorities, are not priorities, really, I think, in my mind, tremendously help. Yeah, if anyone wants to see, we, we have a wiki uh, that, that lists our, our roadmap, basically. It's, you know, relatively high level because it's, you know, for the entire year and a lot of features take a day to implement. So <laughs> you can't be too detailed. Um, uh, so we have this roadmap that talks about a lot of what we're doing. A lot of what we're doing this year is... Uh, bug fixing, essentially, uh, paying down technical debt, um, improving performance, improving our API, uh, API docs, I should say, improving our error messages, stuff like that. Uh, and then there's more to it as well. We're, we've got some work on our ecosystem, and, and obviously we've talked about desktop. We're looking at doing desktop um, support. We're looking at uh, web support. Um, 
and you know all our work on IDs and so forth. Uh, so the, the, there is a roadmap that talks about high level stuff, and then at the lower level, if you're interested in what we're actually working on, like day to day, we try and keep the milestone field on bugs on, on issues in GitHub accurate, um, or at least mostly accurate. <laughs> it's hard to predict when how how quickly you can do something. Um, and so if you look at the, the different uh, milestones, we have you know a milestone for each month of the year, and you can see what we're hoping to have done by that milestone. I try really hard to make the team be conservative in those milestones. So if it says that it will be done, it will be done uh, by a particular date. So I'm not always successful, but that's, uh, it's a pretty good guide. Cool. And can you talk in, in any more detail about desktop and web plans? Well, sure. So uh, at this point, um, again, we we're, we're publishing this after I.O. So I.O., there's been a, a lot of discussion on both those topics. Um, the big news for I.O. is the release of a preview of Flutter for Web in the sense that um, developers can now um, take their Flutter code and, and target it at the web and, and have it run at the web, the largely the same code. It is still in preview. Um, so there are, you know, things that are still coming um, from a polish point of view and, you know, um, making kind of pushing the Flutter web uh, more and more into the mainline uh, Flutter repo and, and making the experience even more seamless. But but they as of today, it, it actually works surprisingly well. Uh, and you can do that today. Uh, we, uh, you've also heard um, uh, at I.O. that we've made it even easier. We've, we've pushed a lot of the support for desktop uh, into um, the core Flutter repo as well. And so it's, we're nowhere near where we want to be in terms of, um, you know, smooth, integrated uh, developer workflow for desktop yet. And we've got a lot of work to do. But you can, in fact, uh, do some... Um, uh, initial steps into uh, creating and testing your Flutter code on, on desktop uh, as well. Uh, so we're pretty excited about, about those features. You should look for the rest of 2019. There'll be lots more about both um, Flutter for web and Flutter for desktop. But our goal eventually is you download Flutter, you type Flutter create, you get your template app up, and then you can Flutter run it on web, on desktop, on mobile devices, uh, maybe other devices eventually, although that you know, web, desktop, and, and mobile is what we're targeting now. Uh, we're, as Chris says, we're a long way from that today, but that's that's very much where we're headed, uh, where we're trying to where we're trying to get to. Do you have a sense of timeframes when you would like to see <laughs> production ready for web or mobile? That's but a rough sense. Are we talking two years, five years, and this would be for web and for desktop? Hello, that is an excellent question. That is excellent. <laughs> Good, something to think about. Something we'll, we'll ponder. We, we can watch the development on it's GitHub. Probably, it's probably a small number of digit of years, maybe maybe a year. It's hard to say. It, it should definitely be less than five years. If we get there at all, it'll be less than five years. If we're still doing it in five years, I suspect that uh, my management will be asking me why I'm wasting all this time. Gotcha. Uh, and then, you know, one of the topics I wanted to discuss, and this comes up a lot, I get questioned by people new to Flutter, is understanding the divide between the material and the Cupertino widgets. So I think some people are disappointed that they feel like they're not going to get 100% code reuse if they have to use separate widgets depending on their platform. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, topic. So originally we had just built uh, a material library and we work closely with the material team and the material team very much intends for material to be applicable both to iOS and Android and web and so on. Like they, they do not view the material library as an Android UI toolkit. Uh, there are uh, many people who would rather uh, on iOS use more iOS-like uh, behavior. And so uh, Material has over over the, the past few years been moving more towards a model where, for example, if you use a switch on iOS, it'll use the, the iOS-like switch and on Android, it'll use the Android-like switch. Um, I guess just the material switch, technically speaking. Um, but then even with that, people would like even more. The difficulty with going even more is you rapidly start finding that it's not that simple. Uh, for example, on on in a material app, the way that the navigation structure works is you have kind of one sort of uh, 
one hierarchical navigator. The say you have a say you have an app with with multiple tabs, and in each tab you can like you know go deeper into the app. On in a material app, you would have your root page has a tab bar, and when you tap into deeper pages, the tab bar would go away and be replaced by these deeper pages. And when you hit back, you eventually get back to the page with the tab bar. So it's a single hierarchical model with with tabs at the high level.、Um, on iOS, the, the the kind of the Apple way of doing this, as far as I understand it, is kind of reversed. You have tabs at the highest level. And then each tab itself has its own hierarchical navigator, so you can jump from tab to tab even when you're deeply inside one of these one of these、uh, hierarchies. So you know you go you go to the、uh, I don't know the, the the games tab and you click on a game, and then you go to the say the utilities tab, and you go to a utility. When you go back to the games tab, which is still on the screen, you'll be at the game you had clicked on initially. When you go back to the utilities tab, you'll be at that utility you clicked on initially. Uh, it's really hard to come up with a good API that supports both of those models simultaneously.、And、I don't mean hard like you know we have to think for a few more days. I mean hard like it's not clear what that would even look like、um, in a way that is useful enough that you can write an app. I, I could imagine having some sort of really high level description of what your application is. But I think you quickly get to the point where it's so high level that people immediately are like, "Oh, well, this is great!" Except I want to make this tiny tweak, but then you can't make this tiny tweak because you're, you know, locked into whatever the the model is that that you you bought into.、Uh, and so we've we've struggled with this. It's it's not clear to me that there's really a solution there.、Um, I think if if you want a truly iOS like app and a truly material like app. You end up having to rewrite a lot of your code、um, just because they're entirely different models. Now you get to reuse a lot of code. You know, within your individual pages, maybe the you know the game page, for example, is the same on both, or maybe individual subparts of that page can be factored out into widgets that you've then reuse on both.、Uh, but it's not clear to me that the that there'll ever be a one size fits all. Write an app, and it works as Apple would have it on iOS, and as the material team would have it everywhere else. Well, and that、um, you you start thinking about uh, that uh, at the at the mobile level, right? Where there where there are two kind of different ways to navigate, and you can either choose one way and make it work on on both mobile platforms, or you can, as Ian said, you know, break it down and and be more、uh, specific. But but then you start thinking about well at the larger form factors whether that means、um, you know uh, tablets uh, maybe with keyboards and and mice and you know we continue to make、uh, keyboard and mouse input and scroll wheels and and and、uh, tab order and 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 mouse selection and all those kinds of things you would expect you know when you've got、uh, a device with keyboard and mouse. Um, more and more part of what we do in Flutter、um, because we want to support these larger form factors as well, and these larger form factors include, as I mentioned, you know, tablets with, with mouse and keyboard, but they also include, you know, the web. The web has to have all these controls with all this、uh, functionality, and you know, when we start pushing into desktop, Windows, Linux, Mac, obviously they're all going to have、uh, keyboards and, and、um, a mouse attached, and they're going to have these larger form factors, and so now you think. Well, do you want to kind of write、um, your one app and、um, use you know the、uh, you know the width of the screen to say okay if it's you know this size go and do the layout here or if it's this size go and do the layout this way and build it all into a single app or do you want to start taking your app specific、um, widgets and putting them into libraries and then building oh here's what a mobile、uh, app Bringing these same widgets together looks like, and how it navigates. And here's what you know: a larger form factor, right? A desktop、uh, kind of form factor app looks like, and it pulls these components, these widgets together in a different way. Those are those are all questions that、um, that a Flutter developer has to ask themselves as we start to push into these additional form factors. The wonder and beauty of Flutter, of course, is. 
you have all the facilities to do it whatever way works best for you. If you want to pack it all into a single app, you absolutely can. If you want to push things into reusable libraries and then compose them differently and build different apps, one for desktop, one for you know desktop form factors, one for mobile form factors, you can do that as well. Um, but these are these are larger questions that you know Flutter developers have to ask themselves as we push into these additional form factors. Those are great points. These are questions we're asking ourselves. You know, we've invested a lot of time building a new mobile app for our platform and hoping in the long term turn into a desktop and a web app. It seems to me we have to fit the least common denominator, which should be the web, which could be kind of variable size. And desktop also, right? They could resize the application. And ideally, we'd love to have a kind of responsive layout where it adapts depending on the size. Something that the web really tried. The web was essentially designed to do this. And I don't think it's actually done that good a job of it. Uh, and I say that as someone who, you know, spent a good decade of his career trying to make this work. Um, in theory, on the web, you have you write your web page once, and it's device independent, and it'll work just as well on your wristwatch as it will on your TV, and everything in between. And in practice, it's really hard, if not just impossible, to truly do that. Uh, I mean, you can you, there are certainly examples where people have done good good jobs of that, but fundamentally, a lot of apps just need different UIs for your you know handheld mobile device than they do for your laptop and so even on the web you end up seeing people write mobile sites and, and desktop sites um, the web has gotten away with with being its own platform so you don't typically see people writing websites for iOS and websites for Android um, they you know just write the mobile website and it doesn't look like like either iOS or Android really expects um, but it, it's how would, how would I say that? Um, yeah, it, it's just that I guess the, the point I was trying to make is just that even the web, which really was designed to do this from the ground up, it has found it very difficult. And I, don't, I don't see anything that the web is doing wrong that we could do better. Uh, so I, I'm not I'm not full of confidence that we'll magically find a solution to it. Yeah, there are a lot of packages out there uh, for people who who do want them the simpler. Just oh hey, you know I I. I don't care about getting my precise tab stuff the way I exactly want it. I just want to make it look like iOS on iOS, make it look like Android on Android. There are packages out there that, that will do that. Uh, and I, I totally encourage people to use those. Um, we haven't written our own, mostly because we haven't been able to see what value we'd be able to bring to the ecosystem that hasn't already been, been, uh, been made available. Cool. That's a great answer. Uh, so, Ian, I, I read I read your writing all day, every day on GitHub <laughs> comments. Uh, so, love to know what your secret is. I mean, you have tremendous communication skills, but also level headedness, which I think is really critical. Is there a secret, or is it just principles you have, philosophy? Uh, I don't think there's any secrets. I, I, a lot of this comes from my experience with with uh, working on HTML. Um, I, I spent a lot of time collecting feedback, and the only way I could re remain relevant, you know, that no, nobody had any requirement to follow anything I did or said. They, they could easily, uh, you know, find a different spec to follow. In fact, it was very much the case with HTML because the W3C and, and the work I was doing were in some ways competing for a lot of, a lot of the time I was working on HTML. Uh, so it was very much in my interest to do the thing that was technically the best, um, and avoid uh, political pressures, shall we say? Um, and I've tried to to continue that um, objective approach to to my work on Flutter. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, it, that it's working. <laughs> it's appreciated. No, it's appreciated. I, I manage a much, much, much smaller open source project, uh, and I find it challenging. It's definitely tricky. One of the things I would say to anyone who wants to do an open source project. Uh, something I didn't do well with the what working group in HTML, which I, I think we've done much more successfully with Flutter, um, is uh, having a good code of conduct. Uh, there, there's a tendency when you're writing a code of conduct to be like, okay, you know, we should have, we should make sure that we don't allow people to insult other people. We should, you know, things that are clearly egregious behavior. And with the Flutter code of conduct, I really took a step back and I was like, you know what, let's let's go orders of magnitude higher in terms of setting the bar. It's not just that we want people to be polite to each other. We want people to really like help each other, be actively uh, pleasant. And so we don't even tolerate people being grumpy, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that's really helped a lot. Like it, it sets the tone of the project 
And I think um, it it means that people feel more um, it, it it makes a more accepting uh, environment, it makes a more a safe place. I think is is a good way to put it. Um, I obviously, I don't read every bug, so if anyone sees anything that's out of line, uh, and by out of line, I really mean just you know not the most pleasant thing you can imagine, um, then do let me know, and I'll I'll, I'll have words with people. Um, but we really want to keep the community to be absolutely the most pleasant place you can find on the internet. <laughs> nice, I love it. And then just the last question, I'm just curious, we talked earlier about the naming discrepancy with Adapter. Are there any other things you would do differently now that you know everything? And- I have a whole list. I have a, I literally, there's, a, there's an issue you can find, uh, let's see if I can remember what number it is, uh, where I put down all the things I wish to change that I don't think we'll be able to change. Uh, issue 24722 lists a whole bunch of things that I wish we could change, but that are kind of too baked in now to to really change. We might be able to change some of them if we develop uh, technologies to, to automatically migrate people which we keep talking about. Do you guys look into AI at all with code generation? Uh, it's hard. AI is really not there yet. <laughs> Humans have trouble with this stuff. I don't know that I would trust an AI at this point. <laughs> right. Fair answer. It's amazing. Thank you both so much for your time. Is there anything either of you would like to add or share? I was just saying I encourage people to contribute. Please feel free to, to, to come. We, we accept uh, anyone. We, we, we want to have a very open community here. So... And feel free to reach out to me if there's any troubles. Yeah, let me just double down on that. Absolutely feel free to reach out to me as well. Um, uh, You know, it's my job to understand what's stopping anyone from being as successful as they can be with Flutter and to work with the team to make sure that we, you know, solve as many of those problems as we can. Um, And I encourage, like Ian said, uh, for people to be active contributing members of the community. We have so uh, much rich community. And this podcast is certainly part of that. Um, and so I, I encourage people to be uh, as big a part of the community as they can be. And also uh, the five talks, the five Flutter talks uh, that happened at IO this year have, are all individually fantastic. I would definitely recommend uh, if you haven't seen those talks yet to go check them out. Awesome. Thank you both again so much for your time and for your efforts on the Flutter project. Uh, world peace is within reach. <laughs> no promises there. And certainly no delivery date. <laughs> <laughs>